For CrossCut.com, I'm Katie Sewell. Imagine that a Seattle high school had six students die this year alone. Six well-loved students dead from either suicide or murder. That would be front-page news, and we as a city would be demanding answers. At least that's what we'd like to think. But this has happened this year. Karen Andrews is principal of the Interagency Academy, an alternative high school that's part of Seattle Public Schools. They take in 20 to 40 kids every week for all kinds of reasons, from being homeless to being released from juvenile detention. Karen Anderson sat down with me to talk about her students after a memorial for James, a student who died a week ago. James was 18, and he was a beautiful, beautiful kid. He was the kind of kid who did not have a mean bone in his body. He had an amazing smile, and he was homeless, and he was really, really sad. I mean, underneath that smile was a really, really sad kid who just couldn't, I don't think, see his way out of whatever he was in, you know, to his bigger goals. He was really loved. The kids just did a beautiful memorial where they brought his favorite foods, gushers and fruit by the foot. And then they had pizza. And one of our kids works at uh, Domino's and she went and made the pizzas herself this morning at Domino's and brought them over. And they had Pokemon cards because he loved Pokemon. He was kind of a different kid in terms of a high, you know, when you think of a traditional high school kid, he still liked all those things. So they had this celebration and, and everybody just shared memories. It was really nice, but he stepped in front of a train last Friday night, which was pretty awful to imagine. Did you have any indication that something like this might happen to him, that he might kill himself? Yes, we did, actually. And we did a lot of intervention planning with him, future planning, like all the right stuff that you're supposed to do. And James was smart and knew, I think now in retrospect, he knew that, that he was going to do this and he knew the right things to say to us to make sure that he could get free of us a little bit to to go in and do this. Can you describe what his life would have been like on a day-to-day basis leading up to this? Yeah, I can. I mean, so he was looking for permanent housing and and he was on lists to get permanent housing, but he hadn't gotten it. He moved here. He started with us on Halloween, actually. So October 31st, 2014, he did not have a place, so he would try to stay at the Orion Center in their overnight lottery shelter. So every, you know, when he got in there, he would spend the night there, and then before he left in the morning, he would call to get on the wait list for the next night, and then he would go to school at the Orion Center where our school is, and then after that, he would come back to hear whether or not he got in the lottery, and if he did, then great, he would stay. If he didn't, he would eat dinner, and then he would start walking, and he would walk all the way through the night. That was his way of knowing that he could stay safe. And one time in December, he walked probably two nights straight. And when he came in to school, he could not walk. He was just shuffling and his feet hurt so badly. And so the staff called our school nurse. She came over and picked him up, brought him to our hub in Columbia City and brought him to our, we have a teen health center run by group health. They saw him and they fixed him up and helped him, but it was really, I mean, just to imagine what that kind of pain that he was going through on a day-to-day basis because of the fact that he did not have housing or support outside. How did he end up in that situation? Do you know how he became homeless? Yes. 
a tricky family situation. He he had been in New Mexico with his mother. He aged out of this mental health program that he was in there when he turned 18. And so they returned to Seattle where they were from. Neither of them had housing. And when when there's a mother and a son, he's deemed an adult the day he turns 18. He can't stay in the same shelter that she was staying in. She got housing, and she did not want James to live with her. So James continued to go through the lottery housing situation or the overnight shelter situation. She had bought him a, right across from Ryan Center is a 24-hour fitness, and she thought he could go between 24-hour fitness and a Ryan Center, and that would be enough support. How did you find out that he had died? Well... I was at Orion actually Monday morning for something else, and one of my teachers told me that she was really worried about James because she had brought him on Friday to a for our seniors. He was going to graduate in June. She brought him to a senior luncheon we did with the Seattle Community Colleges, Seattle Central. They went up there, and he really didn't want to go because he gets kind of anxious in groups, but it was part of his future planning, part of our, our way of keeping him from doing something like killing himself and he went and he kind of disappeared after the lunch teacher was really really concerned about him so she told me that Monday morning then I left to go to one of my other schools and I got a call from another teacher there and said that he had just talked to James's mom and that she had gotten a call from the hospital that that he had killed himself what was your reaction I was actually really shocked I was really shocked. I pulled my car over to the side of the road. I usually talk on my phone all the time while I'm driving, and I just pulled over, and I thought, wow, I better reroute my course. So I did. I turned around and drove back to Orion, and I I helped facilitate a community meeting with the kids to and talk with the staff first about how we're going to tell them. That's what we did. How did you tell them? Well, we got them in a circle. We have a small enough school that we can put the whole group in a room, and there were probably 30 of us, 20 of us, I don't know, something like that, 20 to 30 of us in the circle, and we said we are a community and a family. We think of our schools as being like a fam- a second family, sometimes a first family. And, you know, we said as a family, as a community, we celebrate together, we solve problems together, and we grieve together, and we have to tell you about this what we just learned and we told them and I mean you could have it was silent it was silent it was really powerful our kids are amazing and at Ryan that community of teachers and kids is young people I should say because they're not all kids they're so insightful I, I don't think there was a kid there that hadn't either really seriously thought about suicide or had tried it one girl shared that she had jumped off a third-story balcony trying to kill herself. Another was really moved by the fact that we were doing this, and she'd always imagined that this would be done for her because she thought about killing herself every day. I mean, it was very, I don't know, it was very moving. Well, and the really tragic thing about this story is this is not the first one that's happened this year within your school. Is that right? Right. Right. This is the sixth student that we've lost this school year from October till this week. 
Six different people. Yeah, six people. And none of them are related to each other. It's not like uh, you might imagine like a gang war where there's one side that shoots and then another side shoots back and kills somebody. It's not been like that. It's been, we've actually had three people commit suicide, three students commit suicide, and three uh, who were shot by someone else and killed. Was any of that reported in the news, any of these deaths? The only one that was was a student who was actually had transferred back two weeks ago. That Robert, who was who was uh, shot on Beacon Hill, his story was in the news. He had transferred back to Cleveland High School, so he wasn't part of our school anymore. We had him for two and a half years prior to this transfer, but there was a lot of media coverage around that one. The other ones, not at all. Why do you think that is? I, so all six of the students who have died this year are African American boys, young men. I think if we, as a city, if Seattle had six white girls who were killed or who died during one school year, I think we'd have a whole different kind of response, don't you? Particularly if they were all coming from the same school. Yeah, exactly, exactly. It would be, I think people would be, the whole city would be stopping and really considering what was going on. So why aren't we? It's a really good question. That's part of the reason why I decided I would talk to you because I think I, it makes me really sad because each of these, these six individuals were really special people. And it's such a loss that I, I think people don't know, don't know how much life they'd lived and what they'd been through to get to the place where they were. And so I think it is important for people to know. Not know because they should be scared, but no, because just to kind of honor these individuals. Like this is the first year we've ever had anything like this, six students, and it's March. I mean, we're all scared. My staff, I mean, the cumulative effect of that on our students and staff is pretty tremendous. I mean, just builds up this sense that you just don't know what's going to happen. I think my staff is really nervous to get an email from me at night anytime now, you know, because it has been six times I've sent an email saying, just need to let you know this. And many, many more students, to be honest with you, that are on that line. I mean, so many of our students walk the line of life and death all the time. I mean, either being involved in gangs or by having really serious untreated depression and trauma they're living with or being in just really unsafe situations because they don't have a place to live and they're walking the streets at night or they're in really bad domestic violence dv situations i mean there's so much any other year we probably could have had that or you have students who get shot but don't die we always feel really lucky when that happens which is a strange thing but i think our our new reality is just uh like that well, maybe we should spend a few minutes talking about who these six people were. We talked about James, but who else were these kids? Introduce us to them. Okay. So DeAndre was the student we lost in October. I could actually play you. I have his video. We do a vision video of them. Do you want me to play it sure, for you? Yeah. Okay. When we take in new students every week, we're setting up goals for them in all of these areas. Academic goals, your personal goals career goals, all these things, right? But then, you know, we sort of felt like there was something missing from it, and that was, why are you going to, you know, your attendance goals? Why are you going to start attending more than 
zero days a week. You're going to go from zero to three or four or five days a week. Why? Why do you want to do all these things? Why do you want to change? And so we started doing this visioning process with the kids to have them like sort of remember the bigger picture, you know, of what you're trying to do. And then we try to be really public about that, like, okay, so you do it, you write it or draw it or whatever you want to do in your plan. And then we had them say it to us. And so that's where that's where this comes. So this is DeAndre. DeAndre, and uh, my vision is I'm going to be a GED graduate within three months. And yeah, swaggy. <laughs> You can just see a sense of humor there, right? Like he's, he's, and he's adorable. He had tons of friends and he was just really gregarious, social, social. He loved being around people and he was, he was a sweet, sweet kid, funny. So that's, that's DeAndre. He had a strong family. Mom loved him so much and brothers. And I mean, he was, he was well loved. That was one week before he died. One week. Yeah. What happened to him? He was shot in Belltown inside of a club. I went to his funeral, and there were a lot of people there, and it went on for a very long time because people just kept getting up and sharing more stories. You know, he was a big, strong kid, but he was also just a kid. He was just always moving and trying to make people laugh. He had a lot of girls who really liked him, too. So Romeo was a kid who grew up in West Seattle, he was really smart, really analytical, the kind of kid who wanted to argue with you about everything, no matter what. He would argue really deep, big philosophical things about like power and that kind of stuff. But he'd also argue, you said you wanted to buy pizza for the group. Then he would find a way to argue against, like he would, he just liked to argue all the time. And he was also a pretty serious and really thoughtful person, really close with his family as well. He was uh, at our school um, in West Seattle, Southwest, in and out of there a number of times. And he um, committed suicide in November. He shot himself at his girlfriend's house after school one day. Was that a surprise to you? Absolutely a surprise, yeah. But maybe not to people who were closer to him, like his girlfriend. He was really in love with his girlfriend, and that's what everybody says. And kids said that she was going to break up with him that day after school, and that's the last I heard about. You know, I mean, I had heard that after the fact that that was the, the thing, but there had to have been a lot of other stuff going on for him in terms of his depression. But here, I'll show you him. He's also adorable. My name is Romeo, and at the end of the year, I plan to be the man who can provide for his family legitimately with no dependency on legal activity whatsoever. And I plan to be somebody that makes more money than time spent. Serious, right? He's serious. Yeah, a planner, it sounds like. Provide for the family and be stable. Yeah, and not do it illegally, because that was a problem. So he was saying, I want to provide in, in a legal way, which is, we're always supporting that. Let's talk about that for one second, because that might be part of the reason why people don't feel as sympathetic is that a lot of these kids are in involved in illegal activities. Can you give some background that might change people's perspective? Yeah. I mean, you have to know someone's story, right, to understand why they do what they do. Nobody starts out, you know, wanting to be involved in illegal activity, but they don't see another way 
all their the modeling that they have around them and also the challenges that they face in terms of dealing with big family situations where you know if you go home and the power is off and there are little kids in the house that are maybe your little cousins or your little brother or sister and there's no food and the power is off and a parent may be working maybe trying to make ends meet but it's not happening then kids try to find a way to get what it is that they need that's one thing that happens. The other thing that happens is the streets are really unsafe where a lot of our kids live. They're going from point A to point B, even from wherever they're living or staying to school to get there. So oftentimes they have to pass through areas where a lot of stuff's happening, where it's not safe and where they get threatened. And if they don't choose to get involved in whatever gang activities going on, illegal activities going on, then it becomes really unsafe for them. So they either start fronting, pretending that they're in a gang, you know, representing a gang that maybe they're not in, or they start doing stuff for the gang that they are running into. And it becomes about safety and safe passage sometimes too. Given that that is the case, you have a, a big sect of our city that is able to ignore that, that would not consider the streets unsafe. As we talk, we're in Ballard, right. which is pretty safe. How are we able to ignore that? It's like two different worlds entirely. It is. It is. I had to use my uh, my map in my car to, to get here because I never come here. And I mean, it is really pretty and it's really nice. If people stayed here and they didn't go downtown or go other places, they probably wouldn't see much of what we're talking about. But I still think that there's a human element in all of this. Nobody wants to see somebody else's kid die or be so depressed that they can't see another way but to take their own life, you know? That's a universal thing. But it does just feel disconnected, you know? And when you read what people write when there's anything newspaper online you know and people put comments on it there's incredibly racist and judgmental stuff that is said it's really hard to read there is a disconnect we're socialized to fear what we don't know and what's different from us and and i think that is a huge guiding factor in this who's number three number three is junior who has been a student of ours for years actually and junior was shot and killed on new year's eve in the south end um he was gang involved his family was fairly gang involved as well and he was shot walking to the store with his friend and his girlfriend he also has a baby he and his girlfriend had a baby he was pretty entrenched in the life of being part of this and it was huge hugely about where he lived and and safety really and he had a younger brother one year younger and they were practically twins junior and isaiah you never said junior's name without saying isaiah's name and they were really tight they were funny 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 kids that loved playing around that loved talking about the future loved junior loved his baby he really wanted something different for the baby and he he had said, I'd seen him a bunch in the fall, and he wasn't enrolled in school early fall. And I kept saying, hey, are you going to, let's get you back in school. Let's get you back in school. And he'd say, nah, school isn't for me. I'm not doing it. But he would force this younger kid who really looked up to him to go to school. I mean, he would literally drive him every day 
come inside and sit down and wait for him to go to school. And that's when I would harass him. And a lot of us would harass him about, what about you? What about you? What are you doing? Why don't you get back in? Because he'd been, like I said, enrolled a long time before. And then right before Christmas, right before the break, he came in and said, I want something different. I'm getting back in school. And he re-enrolled. He said, I want something different for my family. I want something different for my baby. I'm doing this. And then he was killed New Year's Eve. So when that happened, what we really should have done is found a way to wrap around his brother, Isaiah. Because Isaiah, like I said, I mean, they were so close and they were so similar, almost like how twins can be. And we knew Isaiah would just be so wrecked, just not able to move forward. And we tried, we tried to reach out. So did his street outreach workers, the gang intervention street outreach workers tried, but we didn't try hard enough, I don't think. And we didn't have a coordinated approach. And I feel like we really let him down because three weeks later in January, Isaiah shot himself. And that was really, really devastating. He was playing roulette actually with a gun with some other students of ours. I mean, I consider that to be suicide. He had no hope, so he was willing to do that. And what about the other students that were involved in that? Have you spoken with them about it? I spoke with one on Wednesday about it, actually. He came in. He hadn't been in school in months. I gave him a big hug. I saw him in the hall, and I said, how are you? And he said, I miss my brothers, meaning Junior and Isaiah. And then he, he said, I wish I would have been able to do something. I was right there. I should have been able to do something. It could have been me. And then big tears came down his face and he said, you know, I can't talk about it anymore. Like just, it's, they're so damaged and shut down. I mean, to be that close to somebody when they're shot and killed or to hold somebody. One of my other students held Junior as he bled to death, you know, as his heart stopped. I don't know how you bounce back from that. As an adult, I don't know. I have never had to do anything like that and I can't even imagine it, but they... But that's almost like the new normal to them, to be around this kind of violence and death and sadness. A lot of the kids could talk about being shot or seeing somebody shot. It's pretty powerful. How do you deal with it as an educator? A big piece of our mission statement is to create a trauma-sensitive environment. Our whole idea of how to work with kids who've been unsuccessful in school thus far and who've had so many bad experiences and have so much outside trauma, we try to really meet kids where they are, try to build from there based on a strengths-based approach, like figure out who they are, take small steps. For example, most schools, if school starts at 8 and you're not there at 8 and you get there at 930 that's going to be a big problem, right? And when kids enter and they're late every day, what happens? People say, this is what's going to happen. Now you have lunch detention. Now you have after school. Like all this sort of piling on of other bad things. What we do is if a kid walks in at 930, we say, hey, it's so good to see you. I'm so glad you made it. And we take note of what time they're getting there. And then after a week or two weeks of doing that, then we say, hey, you know what? You've gotten here every day by 9 30 that's amazing is there a way we could move that up you think you get here by nine we're honoring where they are and trying to figure out what's behind that when we talk about truancy you know people always say well yeah he has a truancy problem and they come to us and it's like 
truancy isn't a problem. Truancy is a symptom of a problem or of multiple problems. Like you have to get out. Why are they late? Well, what if they're late because they have to feed and clothe and get to school? They're three younger siblings. That's all there is. They have to. They do that and then they have to take Metro all the way to our school and get there. I mean, that okay, that's one thing. If they're late because they have no place to stay and they're trying to figure out how to get from wherever they are to school, that's a whole nother thing, right? If they're late because they can't get up without getting high, they can't deal with the pain and suffering that they feel, that's another thing. So that you have to think about why something is happening, try to help them address that, not just say, you're late, lunch detention. How does that help? Uh, you know, it really doesn't help anything. So, so our approach is really about meeting them where they are. The tricky part is you have to know and you have to build enough trust with the student right away to be able to figure that out. How do you do that? How do you personally build trust with a student? You'd be amazed at how easy it is. You're present, you look at them, you see them, and you listen. Everybody wants to belong. That is our theory of action, right? Like everybody wants to belong and wants to be successful. You let them belong. You show them that they belong. You listen. You take time. You don't hurry away. You ask them questions, and and you're present. That's all it takes. If the system is failing them in so many other regards, how much do you think that racism plays a part of it in the city of Seattle? It plays a tremendous role in it. I mean, I think we have institutionalized racism in so, so many places. I mean, everywhere that has broken down the trust between families, families of color and the school system, all of the systems. And that makes it hard. And obviously I'm white, so it's not obvious on a tape perhaps, but it might be what I really believe, having worked predominantly in communities of color where I'm minority being white, I never try to be more than what I am. I don't try to be somebody else, pretend to be, to have a different experience than what I've had. And that's enough. You know, you choose to be there. You choose to show up. You follow through on your commitments that you make. Show somebody that you legitimately care. It can change everything. I mean, it truly can change everything. When these students die, or particularly the ones that kill themselves, does that feel like a failure to you personally? Yes, completely it does. It feels like for every one of these kids, for the three that kill themselves... It does. It feels like what everyone on my staff has said, what could I have done? What could we have done? What should we have done? And I think there are things we could have done. I'm not sure if it would have made a difference or not, but I don't think you'd be in this if you weren't thinking about that. And now we're thinking about all all the kids that are also thinking about that across all of our schools and thinking, what are we going to what are we going to do? You know, I mean, what are we going to do to prevent this? I'm not sure the answer. Let's talk about another one of the students that you lost. Okay. So after Junior and Isaiah. Then we made it through the month of February with nobody dying, which was huge because we had October, November, December, January. Then we made it through February, and I really believe that a lot of us had a huge collective sigh of relief, like, okay, maybe this cycle is broken. And then Beacon Hill shooting what always happens is you hear about a shooting you know I'm on a Twitter feed with the Seattle police and you hear shooting here and every time I look at what's the age 
And if they're 21 or under, I'm almost sure immediately that it is one of my students and start putting the feelers out there to kids and very quickly, long before it becomes public, who the victim is, we know. And on that one, we heard it was Robert. And Robert was a student of ours for two years and had transferred back to Cleveland at the beginning of this school year. He was set up to graduate. And Robert, I know well. His older sister actually lived with us, me and my family, for a little while when she was in eighth grade, when things were really tough for the family. He was an incredibly, incredibly kind kid. And everybody's talking about, you know, what was he involved in? Was he gang involved? Was he not? And my teacher, one of my teachers who's at Alder, who deals with a lot of really tough kids, um, he said, without a doubt, Robert was one of the kindest kids that I've ever had. And I don't believe for a second that he was involved in some gang stuff. I don't believe that any of that is true. It's certainly true that he had family members that were gang involved, but the kids were telling me, you know, on that Monday morning when I was at Alder that he had just gotten a tattoo on his hand and that he was walking up to to go to his friend's house to get this special cream that his friend had said would make his tattoo feel better. And on that walk, somebody pulled up and shot him, killed him. You must have those thoughts where you are asking in your head, why? Why would he be killed? Of course. Of course, everybody is. And I talked to someone from SPD uh, the other day, and they're saying, there must be more. Is anyone talking? Because usually the streets talk, they say, you know, and you can hear a lot of theories. And, and the crazy thing about this is there aren't any. Nobody's talking. And my kids, believe me, they talk. They tell everything. I mean, when you, you know, before New Year's Day had ended, I had heard, I knew who shot Junior. I mean, that doesn't mean that that's going to stand up in a court that I know because it came from my students, but those things happen. It's so quick. I, I had heard who shot DeAndre. I always hear right away and nothing on this. It's just silent. There has to be something. There has to be a reason behind it, but I don't know what it is. Can you describe for the people who are listening who don't live in any of these neighborhoods where something like this happens, what is the climate in neighborhoods where people are being shot? What's it like to live there? Well, I live in one of those neighborhoods. I live off of Rainier and Mount Baker. You hear a lot of gunfire. Or you hear a lot of sirens. You hear You hear that. What I think you see is you see kids who when they get off the bus and they're walking down the street wearing hoods pulled up, people being a little more anonymous in terms of their their appearance and not trying to stand out and people looking around a whole lot. Parents are really scared. I mean, it starts to feel like, is this just going to happen to my kid? Somebody said something to me that was really positive about our school because, you know, in the past they said that when you listen to people out on the streets, kids out on the streets talking about death and talking about when a friend dies, it's sort of expected. They sort of expect it. They kind of have a a sense that will happen to them. This staff member said the thing that is really different this year to me is that our kids are outraged. They don't believe that this should happen and they don't want this to happen. They're not expecting this. They want something different for their lives, which I took in as a real positive. But I, I don't think there's a way you can argue that that it's not having a huge toll. 
It's so hard to answer these questions, but what can we as a society be doing to help them? I don't know if you followed the controversy about us opening a new school on Queen Anne, but we just opened it last week. There was big controversy because we were opening a new interagency site that was actually for kids who are committed to their drug and alcohol recovery. And it was going in uh, on the top of Queen Anne in the old Queen Anne gym, right across the street from John Hay Elementary. People went ballistic. They were thinking that my kids were going to come up there and they were gonna, there was going to be another Sandy Hook. I mean, they really said that. And there was a ton of fear. Then something pretty incredible happened, which was a few people, a few parents stepped forward and took a real leadership role, an active role in trying to support us in our school there. They did that by getting more information, by talking to me and my staff, by trying to really just kind of understand instead of be scared, because it is really natural to be afraid of something you don't understand. I have two girls, little girls, four-year-old and eight-year-old, there's nothing that can get you, me, crazier than thinking that something is going to happen to one of my kids. I feel the same way about my students. At first, I was so irritated by the racism and the, you know, not in my backyard attitudes that were coming out. I mean, they were really crazy. Then this group of people, white people also, just came forward and said, we're not going to talk about these kids this way. These kids are our kids. All kids deserve to have a school. And this is an incredible opportunity for our community to embrace the school and to, and to shift that. And I guess that's what I think is going to make the difference is to give our kids a chance to when they're walking down the street instead of crossing the street when you see a group of kind of rowdy teenagers that may look scary to you because of all kinds of good reasons. You've seen things in the news, you've heard heard a lot of stuff, but instead of letting that come in, talk to them, say hello, greet them, smile. Everybody wants to be seen and, and known. It's the small actions by offering them a job or an opportunity to talk about a job or learn what it is that you do or it's connections it's all connections and allowing your networks to open up taking time just taking time with them and trying to get to know people people who are different from you I think that's what's going to make the difference when it comes to the six students of yours who died this year would you have wanted to see their stories in the paper beyond just Robert's story it all depends on, on how the story's told. I want to see them respected, and I want to see their life valued. So yes, I would like to see it in the paper. I would like to see it not be, you know, sort of looked at as another gang shooting, another kid we're expecting to lose lost. And that's a sad statement right there. The kids we're expecting to lose. Do you really feel like that is the way that society feels, particularly when it comes to young black men? Yes, I do think that that's what I see. When you look at the comments people make about even a shooting or something that has happened, it's very much the people who comment aren't representative of, every, of everyone. But yeah, I think people expect it, including people within that demographic expect it, a lot of them. And, and that's really, really sad and scary. Karen Andrews is principal of the Interagency Academy, an alternative high school in the Seattle public school system. For Crosscut.com, I'm Katie Sewell.